Hello friends and welcome to season two of The Membership. Just a quick note here before we get started. First of all, we want to thank all of you, our listeners, for the support you showed us during season one. From the in-person comments we received at the recording of our live first episode, to all of your kind and thoughtful iTunes reviews, social media posts, and emails, the amount of support our fellow members have given us has been wonderful. It's this support that inspires us to continue our work and to want to make the podcast even better in Season 2 and beyond. And we're hoping some of you can help us. While we certainly understand that not all of our fellow members will be able to support us financially, we'd like to ask those of you who are to consider making a monthly donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash membership pod. Your donations will go toward covering the costs associated with the podcast, including website hosting fees, recording equipment, editing help, and travel costs for future interview episodes. And any amount that you can afford to donate will be a huge help, even if it's just a dollar a month. All monthly patrons at the dollar a month level or above will be invited to a private Facebook group where we'll post special updates about upcoming episodes, bonus content, and even share unedited episodes and interviews. So go to patreon.com slash membership pod to pitch in today. guys how are you doing tonight doing all right very well we're getting ready for maybe a tiny bit of snow tonight which i'm looking forward to really looking forward to as and i'm hoping for but yeah (laughs) (laughs) extend the thanksgiving break but yeah yeah um yeah so we're recording this uh the weekend after thanksgiving so did you guys have a good good holiday yeah it was was good yeah, it was a different one for us. We we were normally with my parents, but they were in California visiting my brother. And so we did kind of a, a an unusual thing for our family in which like, it was just the four of us at home. All of our housemates were gone. And so we watched movies all day and like we each picked our favorite snack, like each each, each member of the family got to pick their favorite snack. And we just ate snacks and watched movies all day because we had kind of our, our house Thanksgiving on saturday and that was that was a lot of fun that sounds incredible yeah jealous (laughs) (laughs) so relaxing that's great i I, on my on my end in the last uh let's see 48 hours i very likely like uh, cracked a rib and my daughter is upstairs and can't walk because she like ran into something and hurt her leg and so we spent our weekend getting numerous injuries so (laughs) That was that wasn't the only thing that happened, but that was if you, if you were uh, we're doing this over Skype, so if you guys see me like wincing, just don't feel you need to respond. That's just me. Yeah, <laughs> I thought That's... you were going to somehow connect the cracked rib to eating too much turkey or something like that. No, no, no. I do have a chipped tooth that I chipped on Thanksgiving on a fork like five years ago. That was <laughs> it was yeah yeah that's. I don't usually admit that one openly, and it wasn't. I wasn't biting that hard. It was just was bad luck. You know? <laughs> Your family's the one that should really keep like lay low on Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. kidding. That's why I'm jealous. Yeah, well, next year, next year. 
Well, a little peek behind the curtain. Like we are recording relatively soon after doing our last recording, and that's because we're trying to get another episode in under the wire because Jason uh, Jason has big changes ahead. You want to talk yes. about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, my, my wife is uh, very, very close to <laughs> giving birth to our uh, our first child. Uh, we're having a little girl. Uh, her her due date is um, in less than two weeks now, so it's kind of at the uh, the anytime stage. So if I just disappear in the middle of this recording, you guys know know, <laughs> know where I'm going. Do you have you have your go bag packed? You know, my wife does. Mm. Uh, I, I I sort of feel like I I use all of the things that I would pack on a daily basis. So <laughs> you're wearing your go bag. I, I'm wearing my go bag. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So yeah. So, well, anyways, cool. yeah, we're 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 excited and uh, terrified and all those things. So, I'm really happy for you. This is going to be great. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, for real. Well, I'm glad too that we could get another at least one more episode in before yeah. before that happens. Um, we only have one uh, farm fresh point uh, this week, and that's for me. It's uh, I, when I was at the library just tonight with my daughters. I'm in charge of picking out kids' books for my daughter's uh, kindergarten uh, classroom. And as I was looking through some of the new stuff, I found a book that was really beautiful. It's called The Hundred Year Barn. Um, It's by Patricia McLaughlin, and it came out just in September. And the story and the setting just reminded me of so much of what I love about Barry's work. It's just about a family that in 1919 built what they called the hundred year barn, a hundred people built it. And the hope is that it would, that it would stand for a century and maybe longer. And it's just kind of about the life that happens in this barn over the course of, of a hundred years. Um, and it's just, it's just really, really sweet. And that in turn reminded me that, uh, there's another kid's book that I've known about for a while, but I don't think we've talked about. And that is a book called a river of words, a picture book, which and the subtitle is the story of William Carlos Williams, came out came out in two thousand eight. Um, as many Barry fans know, uh, William Carlos Williams is a favorite of Barry's. I'm guessing mm-hmm. that if Wendell Berry was going to host a podcast about his favorite <laughs> writer, it might be William Car- or one of his favorite writers. It might be William Carlos Williams. He's actually yeah. written a whole book about Williams's work. We need um, to reach out to him, get this thing going. Let's <laughs> get yeah, Sorry. What, what has he been doing? What has he been doing? <laughs> Come on. Come on. Anyway, I recommend both those books for not only peop, uh, listeners who have kids of their own, but listeners who just love great picture books. And so we'll, we'll have links to both of those in the show notes. You've inspired me. I, I didn't think I had anything to bring up for the Farm Fresh points, but. I've got a children's book to bring up as well. Really? <laughs> Actually, cool. that, yeah, that my my daughter her, her birthday was at the end of October, and my wife, you know, we always like to get a decent amount of books for our kids at every sort of gift giving holiday, and she had found this this book that I had I'd never heard of, but she ordered, and it's called We Are the Gardeners, mm-hmm. and it's by Joanna Gaines, and uh, it just came out this past March, so it's a really really new book and it is the very basic premise is that it's a a large family it's like a 
you know, husband and a wife and I think four kids. And it starts as just this family has been sort of wrapped up in all the wrong things. Like their focus has been in the wrong place. And then finally they, they go out and they buy like a fern or something like that. And it dies like immediately uh, because they overwater it and they're like, they don't know what they're doing. But then like over the course of the book, which it's a decently long children's book, beautiful, beautifully illustrated children's book. um, They become a family just step by step incrementally who becomes this, this family who's really in touch with, their garden and just with like the earth in general it's not super preachy it feels very like real world we did this then we did this then we did this kind of like you know their steps and it's a i I mentioned that it was a long book because our both of our kids were really kind of riveted by it i mean it it took a while to read but they loved it especially my you know my daughter has asked to read it several times so that was yeah it's called we are the gardeners it's a uh joanna Gaines and uh, Juliana Sweeney is the illustrator. That's a great book. That is really cool. Uh, we I just finished reading a book by Joanna Gaines uh, really? that she wrote with her husband Chip. So Chip and Joanna Gaines. That's they, who that is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They, okay. Yeah. They do the show. But that name sounds awfully familiar. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and Molly, my twelve-year-old, loves Fixer Upper, and so we've been watching some of it, and has been a lot of fun, and. Uh, so I just listened to their to their story on audiobook. It was it was easy and fun, and I just kind of needed something that was easy and fun. But it's yeah. been, it was it's actually kind of it was kind of cool to hear more of their story. Cool. All right. So today we are going to be talking about Barry's 1970 poetry collection, Farming, a Handbook, and we used the poems that are found in. The new collected poems. So there, I actually didn't check to see if everything was here from the original collection, but we That's just a lot went, though. A lot, yeah, you're right. It's like fifty pages of uh, of of poetry. Yep. Yeah. So if not all, then then much. Uh, and so I guess we'll man, we'll just kind of I uh, before we even get to the most basic of questions, which is you know just simply, did you like it or what did you like? I had a question about the title because it's not farming a handbook with handbook as one word. It's farming a hand book. And I wanted to know or understand better the significance of that. And I was curious if either one of you had some insight. Yeah. I mean, so I actually, I feel like I went into uh, like early John Pattison mode with some of the first episodes we recorded. Would you remember we, we would talk about like words that get repeated a lot? Yeah, yeah. And I saw I like locked in on something very much like that. And uh, one was that the word airy came up a lot, uh, like a, a, a several times. But the other is that I think it's called a handbook because there are, and I'm just throwing this number out there without being able to reference back. Um, there are probably a dozen poems that have the imagery of like digging your hands into the earth. Mm-hmm. So that's like what I, when I see that title, that's immediately what I, what I think about this. There's, there's a lot of that. Like there's the, and then the one I noticed it um, and I actually had made a note on the page was in the prayers and sayings of the mad farmer. Uh, number seven, he says, put your hands into the mire. They will learn the kinship of the shaped and the unshapen, the living and the dead. 
that was the first time that I, I thought I, I literally circled it and put lots of put your hands in the dirt imagery. I wrote that mm-hmm. over the side. And, you know, there's another one where he talks about like the hands becoming roots. And, and I, so, I mean, that's, that's what makes the most sense to me. I think that it's, it's a book about farmers and farming a lot of it, but there's so much in imagery about like, not just planting things, but kind of like being connected, like physically connected to the, to the earth. Yeah. And I think uh, that's great. I can see that. And it's an interesting contrast with how I think the word handbook, all one word is often used as like a kind of an operating manual for a machine. Um, so there's, there, there may be some contrast there, mm-hmm. you know, between the, the operating manual approach and, and the approach of actually getting your hands into the dirt. Yeah. Because he even says uh, at, at one point in the collection, he, he makes the comment of that a farm's the, the greatest output of a farm is yes the actual land and like the farmer itself, a good farmer the farmer's itself, mind. Yep. Mm-hmm. the farmer's mind, not the actual crop that's mm-hmm. yielded because there's so much out of your control in that. So it is almost like a anti handbook in that sense, because he's not telling you how to do it well. He's just telling you how to be a good, I'm just my, like how to be a good farmer, how to be, uh, to be sort of honestly connected to, to your land. I think it, is that the song song in a year of catastrophe? Is that the one where he talks? Um, no, that's yeah. in prayers and sayings too. Oh, is it okay? Because yeah, I actually that's prayers and sayings number thirteen. Gotcha. Okay. I oddly enough, I just opened and I was flipping through to song song in a year of catastrophe, and I see the third verse um, is, and I went and put my hands into the ground, and they took root and grew into a season's harvest. Mm-hmm. So there was that line I was thinking of, oddly enough. But um, maybe we'll pause and read number thirteen from the prayers and sayings. Yeah poem so in prayers and sayings of the mad farmer there are 13 prayers and sayings and so this is the very last one it's the longest one i believe and it goes like this don't worry and fret about the crops after you have done all you can for them let them stand in the weather on their own if the crop of any one year was all a man would have to cut his throat every time it hailed. But the real products of any year's work are the farmer's mind and the crop land itself. If he raises a good crop at the cost of belittling himself and diminishing the ground, he has gained nothing. He will have to begin over again the next spring, worse off than before. Let him receive the season's increment into his mind. Let him work it into the soil. The finest growth that farmland can produce is a careful farmer. Make the human race a better head. Make the world a better piece of ground. Yeah. I'll say that that hit me even harder hearing it through your voice. There's something about how you read it. You read it very well. Um, but that, and this, this section, and I guess that's, that's as good a place as any to, to start just as far as going through these, uh, this collection, because I, yeah, I think we've kind of accidentally stumbled upon the sort of beating heart at the middle of this collection. Um, and it makes me think, it actually brings me back to your conversation in the last episode with David Klein, um, 
especially the, the, the sections where you guys were talking about uh, drudgery, I think is what mm-hmm. you're talking about. Like, yes, but like drudgery and the fact that nothing is drudgery. If you have that connection and, and that, uh, and that it's not about how wide you're farming, but about how well you're farming, you know? Um, and I'm saying this in, as someone who is, I am not a farmer. I would not call myself a, a farmer. You know, I mean, of course, uh, not, I am barely a gardener in that. And that's, that's not, I know for a lot of people, that's what draws them to Barry's work pretty heavily. And um, I guess I just come at it from a different direction. But of course, that, that metaphor is so fertile, you know. Uh, right. And and you can, you could almost apply it to any kind of work that you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you are, I don't know if, if you're, I mean, Tim teaching a good lesson, right? Like creating a good lesson. Like if you are belittling yourself in the process of doing that, you know, you are diminishing who you are going to be as a teacher for all those other generations of students that may, may come across your path. Yeah. Um, you're so focused on the end product of that one particular lesson. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And that, that I started to like kind of wrestle around with that line then just following that same kind of thought process, the finest growth that farmland can produce as a careful farmer. So um, the, the metaphor I think would then be the finest growth that a classroom can produce as a careful teacher, mm. which for some reason feels a little different to me. You know, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, it feels like it should be the finest growth that a classroom can produce as a careful student, which I think is sort of a sidestep, but also pretty powerful concept to say that mm. um, it's not, uh, you know, a proficient test score. It's a, a careful, well, we'll just say student and teacher. Cause I don't know, but sure. I don't, I don't I'm just processing out loud at this point because <laughs> yeah. you're making me think, but uh, yeah. It, it, and isn't it wonderful that there are 13 stanzas to, to this poem? <laughs> Yeah. Like he chose to have 13 stand, like unlucky 13. This is the mm-hmm. mad farmer talking. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's appropriate. Yeah. 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 And, uh, not 12 for one for every tribe of, of Israel or right. Right. No. Exactly. No, I'm yeah. going to go with a 13. That plus one. Yeah. <laughs> 13 ways of looking at a blackbird. Yeah. It's probably in there somewhere. Um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, while we're here, while we're in the, in the prayers and sayings of the mad farmer, there are a couple of these that are, I think some of his most famous like quips or famous little lines that I've kind of come across in a lot of different places. And two of them stuck out uh, to me. One is uh, number five. uh, Don't own so much clutter that you'll be relieved to see your house catch fire. Um, (laughs) Holy smokes. (laughs) (laughs) I just immediately just like, tossed the book over to my wife. I was like, Hey, read number five. And tossed it over. <laughs> I was like, I think we need to, uh, I think we need to rethink some things. Yeah, so that yeah. one of course stuck out. Cause I, I do see that one elsewhere, but actually my, my favorite, uh, it, within that, um, series of little poems, uh, one that I, I hope to think about every day from now on. And I think it had been years. It had been many, many years since I had thought about it. When I rise up, this is number, uh, number eight. When I rise up, let me rise up joyful, like a bird. When I fall, let me fall without regret, like a leaf. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, I was really, um, yeah, really, really struck by that uh, as a sort of calling and benediction for the day, or something like uh, that's 
that's a that's a progression that I, I really believe in, but uh, it's helpful to have a way to put it that's so simple. Yeah. I heard somewhere that one of the theories for why birds sing in the morning is to let the other birds know they're still alive. Huh. And I don't know if it's the, the joy of being alive or just, just an announcement, yeah. but that, that came to mind when I, when I read number eight, when I rise up, let me rise up joyful like a bird. Yeah. I'm going to rise up singing because, because I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> It reminds me of a, if you have you have your kids watched the Peter Rabbit movie, the new yeah. Peter Rabbit movie? Yeah. And there's the rooster that like speaks. And so like every time he wakes up in the morning, instead of just like saying cock-a-doodle-doo, he's saying like, what? The sun came up again? Here I am again. <laughs> <laughs> I would, if I knew it was going to come up again, I wouldn't have fertilized all those eggs. Um, <laughs> oh, now I have yeah. to be present to my children. Uh, yeah. But, and you know, that uh that story is really interesting to me i've got a personal story to connect to that because uh, when i first moved to johnson city and was going to milligan my parents lived in a little farmhouse in gray tennessee which is like a one town over and the the home that they were renting from a family friend from back in the 70s when they originally lived here uh, was i'm gonna say 30 yards from train tracks Probably, yeah. Uh, not if it's if it was further, it wasn't much further, and those trains ran all night long. And mm-hmm. so, I have these vivid memories of waking up to in hearing like probably subconsciously being woken up by these big like freight trains that are coming through. But by the time I actually rose out of sleep, it was me in the middle of the night with birds t- like chirping, <laughs> you know, which is a really weird sensation. And then to look at my phone or look at my watch or whatever at the time and find out that it was one o'clock in the morning. Um, and just to think of them as like <laughs> these birds being panicked by this roaring train that that rolls through and just being like, I'm fine. I'm fine, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm going to be okay. Because I was kind of feeling the same way at that mm-hmm. moment. Um, yeah, it wasn't exactly those, those days in my life weren't exactly uh, poem 12. Let me wake in the night and hear it raining and go back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. So let me wake to the roaring of a train. Um. Jason, did you have a favorite from these sayings? Yeah, I did. Um, I think number eleven uh, really struck me as as someone who who works for a for profit business, um, and you know that can sometimes uh, produce a little bit of cognitive dissonance. You know, if you're someone whose whose head is in Wendell Berry's writing, but but this really sort of struck me. If I don't know if you know, if any of our listeners are, um, in that, in that position as well. Um, but this is, this is number 11, uh, by the excellence of his, of his work, the workman is a neighbor by selling only what he would not despise to own. The salesman is a neighbor by selling what is good. His character survives his market. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that, that sort of struck home to me is, you know, in if you're someone like me who feels sometimes a little, uh, a little weird about participating in the market, um, focusing on quality and, um, 
yeah the the durability and the reliability of of what you're offering uh seems seems to be a way to go yeah 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 i i I had highlighted that one as well from my perspective uh that one did stick out as well as a a really helpful way for you is from the kind of first person standpoint from a, mm-hmm. but it's really a, a really helpful uh, section as far as how to see everyone else, because we live in a world that's so heavily saturated with salesmen, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. by, by 500,000 other names, you know, sure. But uh, whether it's, whether it's social media or whether it's just moving through a world that is so like richly covered in, advertising and it's so richly uh, covered in people who are trying to get by that it's a, uh, yeah, it's just kind of a good, good, uh, good filter. It's a really helpful filter to, to have handy. Yeah, that's good. What about some other favorite poems from this collection? Uh, Tim, let's, let's head back to you. Yeah, I can, I'd like to, I'd like to dive right into one that really, uh, really kind of, took me off guard uh one that i don't remember ever reading or i guess that means that the last time i read this collection um this one hadn't particularly stuck out to me i hadn't even made any notes on it the last time i had read it but this one uh, i was actually sitting it was right after you know, my my daughter had woken up from a nap or something and it kind of stumbled out sleepily and uh, and she was trying to get my attention which uh, I was happy to give to her, but I was also reading. I was like, hang on, just come up here with me for a second. Sat her in my lap and I, I read it out loud, which she, you know, didn't really, wasn't really comprehending. just was listening and kind of looking at the page and trying to figure it out. She's only three. So she's trying to sort this out. But then at the end, I get my pencil out and she, and I wrote a bunch of stars next to the title and uh, five stars. And she wrote, and she's like, daddy, why'd you, why'd you write? And then she counted them five stars next to that. And I said, because I really love this poem. And she said, mm. Mm, you like this five stars. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> that, was just, that was just how many stars fit. I wasn't like, you know, it wasn't some rating system. But uh, this is the poem, Awake at Night. Late in the night, I pay the unrest I owe to the life that has never lived and cannot live now. What the world could be is my good dream and my agony when dreaming it. I lie awake and turn and look into the dark. I think of a luxury in the sturdiness and grace of necessary things, not in frivolity, that would heal the earth and heal men. But the end, too, is a part of the pattern, the last labor of the heart, to learn to lie still, one with the earth again, and let the world go. Um for me hearing that one it really served as a, a a perfect quiet meditation on kind of the mindset that i'd like to be in more often than i am um i felt at home in reading that but kind of at, at home in the same sense that you feel um like oh, that's what i've been meaning to think or like that's what i've been meaning to do or that's that's what i try to do but i just fail at it over and over again and i think one section that the one the lines that really hit me the hardest the the, the moment when this poem really uh, sort of concreted itself in my mind was i think of a luxury in the sturdiness and grace of necessary things not in frivolity um the sturdy sturdiness and grace of necessary things because uh we live, I live in a, in a world that's, uh, we kind of fall into the trap. 
I'm, I'm constantly falling into the trap of just trying to entertain myself as often as possible. You know, um, we've got a hundred thousand shows we can stream. We've got eBooks everywhere, Kindle daily deals that you can download and have a book that you'll read in 17 years or whatever. Like you're just constantly like fishing for all these things that, uh, while some of them might be good and might be worthwhile things is, is just kind of a frivolous, um, extra in your day when you're surrounded by so many, uh, necessary things that then become, whether it's kids, whether it's your home, whether it's your work, they become burdens when really, um, that's a, that's kind of an upside down way of thinking. So I, I, I love that phrase, the sturdiness and grace of necessary things, because I think that's a really good, uh, it's a really good tagline for how we should think about whether it's work or family or parenting or, um, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So, um, yeah. And then there, the, uh, the learn to lie still, you know, uh, the, that, that ending is a kind of a perfect pairing with the, the other line, you know, um, the sturdiness of necessary things. And then just to learn that in the moments that something is not assigned that you have to do, you know, to, to have that, to, the, that last labor of the heart is to learn to just lie there still one with the earth, one with whether it, you know, one with your family, whatever, but, um, and let the world go because the world so often is just a big stack of those frivolous things that we, we are, it's so easy to convince ourselves uh, are the most necessary mm-hmm. because we deserve them. <laughs> we deserve those frivolous things because we work hard. So yeah, that was, that was definitely my, that was definitely the, the highlight of the, of the collection for me. That's the one that I, I found myself coming back to over and over again. Mm. And it just caught me at the right time. Yeah. I like kind how you... of like a. Go ahead. Uh, I mean, it, just in that last line, yeah, that uh, to learn to lie still, one with the earth again, and let the world go. Like, that, I mean, there's kind of that that sense of like mystical, mystical uh, detachment or re- renunciation there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that is, you know, you're so concerned about the world too, uh, but if you are detached, that's the place where you can sort of return to the world as a, a full person and actually be able to care for it. Yeah. Yeah. It does feel, feel very like monastic or, mm. <clears throat> or Buddhist, or like, even uh, Buddhist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Smacks of the desert fathers or the, right. yeah, or something. Yeah. Jason, was there one poem in this collection that you kept coming back to again and again as one that you, as, oh, as sort of the highlight? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have thoughts about the mad farmer, uh, and, and we can come back to this, uh, we will. But, we will but, for but sure. a figure, <laughs> but, a, but a figure of, of madness, uh, that, uh, that I thought was almost more compelling than the mad farmer is the figure of Mrs. Gaines mm. in mm. meditations in or meditation in the spring rain. Um, I don't, I don't really know how much of this poem to read cause it's kind of long. Yeah. Um, but, but I'll at least start, start at the beginning to, to give a flavor of it. In the April rain, I climbed up to drink of the live water leaping off the hill, white over the rocks where the mossy root of a sycamore cups, the flow I drank and saw the branches feathered with green. The thickets I said, send up their praise at dawn. Was that what I meant? I meant my words to have the heft and grace, the flight and weight of the very hill, its life rising. 
or was it some old exultation that abides with me? Will not soon escape the faith of our fathers, no more than crazy old Mrs. Gaines, whom my grandmother remembers standing balanced 80 years ago atop a fence in Port Royal, Kentucky, singing, One Lord, one faith, one one cornbread. <laughs> they, they had a cage built for her in a room, nearly as big as the room, not cramped up, and when she grew wild, they kept her there. But mostly she went free in the town, and they allowed the children to go for walks with her. So <laughs> there's so much going on there that's so, so wonderful. Obviously, the humor of one, one Lord, one faith, and, and one cornbread. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, he's, he, he sort of begins the poem, you know, he's, he's in, this, uh, in this natural setting. Um, the thickets, I said, send up their praise at dawn. And then he sort of steps back from that. And sort of rethinks that is like, is that just an old fashioned way of saying, saying this? Uh, I'm, I'm casting this natural scene in a religious light. And then that acknowledgement of we'll, we'll not soon escape the faith of our fathers. Um, I don't know that that really sort of ring ring true to me as someone who uh, is is holding on to my Christian faith Um sort of in spite of myself <laughs> at, at a lot of times, you know, the, when I, when I catch sort of churchy phrases crossing my, crossing my lips, I sort of recoil like this, uh, just because, um, I don't know, my, my faith has undergone somewhat of a, a deconstruction. Um, and I've come to a place where I'm sort of okay with that and I'm still sort of holding on to it because it's not that easy to shake. So, so I really, I really resonated with that. And then sort of the end of this poem. Yeah. Just he, he, he goes in a really, uh, a really mystical direction with it. I'll, I'll just sort of, uh, after he talks about Mrs. Gaines for a while and sort of likens her to, uh, he, he says, I'm thankful that they don't, you know, that they let her go free in the town. And I'm thankful that they uh, also do the same thing to poets uh, as well. Uh, <laughs> and even if they put me in a cage, I, I'm hoping that it will be a, a, a big cage that I can I can walk around in. But, a commodious but he, cage. He's a like... commodious cage, yeah. <laughs> then he sort of ends with the thickets, I say, send up their praise at dawn. One Lord, one faith. And one cornbread forever. But hush, wait, be as still as the dead and the unborn in whose silence that old one walked, muttering and singing, followed by the children. Then there's sort of a, a, a line break here. For a time, for a time there, I turned away from the words I knew and was lost. For a time, I was lost and free, speechless in the multitudinous assembling of his word. So there's this there's this play on both madness uh, that is that is throughout this this whole collection with with the mad farmer uh, as well as this sort of emptying that allows you to see the assembling of the word of creation. Um, I guess I should back up and read one more section to make that make sense. <laughs> Surely there is a great word being put together here. 
I begin to hear it gather in the opening of the flowers and the leafing out of the trees and the growth of birds' nests and the crotches of the branches and the settling of the dead leaves into the ground and the whittling of beetle and grub and my thoughts moving in the hill's flesh. So thinking through creation as something that is always happening um, in in the word, uh, I, I think referencing the the first the first chapter of, of John's gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really know completely what to do with all of that, but it's just so, so fascinating to me and, and resonates with me. You mentioned the, the theme of, of madness throughout mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. both in this poem and in the mad farmer poems. And it's worth, it's worth really mentioning that most of these poems seem to have been written in 1968, 1969, mm-hmm. where, like a time in which the the world itself seemed to be going mad, mm-hmm. seemed to be going crazy. Uh, he has references in a number of, of his poems to things that were happening in the news. He has poems with uh, specific dates as the titles, February 2nd, 1968, March 22nd, 1968. The latter was six days after the massacre at My Lai. Um, again and mm-hmm. again... And this is, of course, 1968 is the year that Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated, then Robert F. Kennedy is assassinated, the Democrat, the riots at the Democratic National Convention, uh, Vietnam is, is is ramping up, and like these massacres are are they're trying to cover up a lot of this stuff. Like he's seeing the world around himself going crazy, and so in order just to stay true to his to his values he has to be contrary like in relationship to the world makes it seem like like he's the crazy one if that makes sense uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean it's it's the kind it's the same question that that i don't know i pose to students whenever i teach hamlet right is 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 hamlet going crazy or is the the world around him actually crazy and his reactions are actually the same the sane ones right mm-hmm. um i mean it's it's the same it's the same uh i should know this but is it is it paul or jesus who who talks about being being considered as fools oh that's paul yeah yeah um so it's it's that that same sort of strain when when the world around you is crazy and when everyone else considers insanity to be sanity then you're you're going to start to look insane <laughs> you know with that can i read one of my favorite poems please yeah uh this is the contrariness of the mad farmer i am done with apologies If contrariness is my inheritance and destiny, so be it. If it is my mission to go in at exits and come out at entrances, so be it. I have planted by the stars and defiance of the experts and tilled somewhat by incantation and by singing and reaped, as I knew, by luck and heaven's favor in spite of the best advice. If I have been caught so often laughing at funerals, That was because I knew the dead were already slipping away, preparing a comeback. And can I help it? Mm -hmm. And if at weddings I have gritted and gnashed my teeth, it was because I knew where the bridegroom had sunk his manhood and knew it would not be resurrected by a piece of cake. Dance, they told me, and I stood still. 
and while they stood quiet in line at the gate of the kingdom, I danced. Pray, they said, and I laughed, covering myself in the earth's brightnesses, and then stole off gray into the midst of a rebel and prayed like an orphan. When they said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, I told them, he's dead. And when they told me, God is dead, I answered, he goes fishing every day in the Kentucky River. I see him often. When they asked me what I like to contribute, I said no. And when they had collected more than they needed, I gave them as much as I had. When they asked me to join them, I wouldn't, and then went off by myself and did more than they could have than they would have asked. Well, then they said, "Go and organize the International Brotherhood of Contraries." And I said, "Did you finish killing everybody who was against peace?" So be it. Going against men, I have heard at times a deep harmony, thrumming in the mixture. And when they ask me what, I say I don't know. It is not the only or the easiest way to come to the truth. It is one way. That's one of the poems I read to my wife uh, this morning. And... I have a reputation <laughs> for being contrary, <laughs> but there's a difference between my contrariness and Barry's contrariness. Barry is contrary because he is staying true to those values and principles, which makes him seem crazy in the eyes of the world. I just don't like doing what people tell me to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was going to say this 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 poem could be uh the contrariness of my 6-year-old son cuz I, I see a lot of that in him too. So maybe you guys have a similar, I don't know, enneagram or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Enneagram 4. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you know, I told her when I finished reading I said this this poem makes me want to be more contrary. And I saw her roll her eyes and sigh and <laughs> impossible. Uh, yeah. But then I said, you know, here's what I mean by it. It means what it really means is this poem makes me want to live more consistent with my own values. Uh, this is a yeah. poem that he read on the Bill Moyer show. Yeah. And if I knew it was safe to play the clip, like copyright wise, we would play Barry reading it himself. And speaking of that, if anybody out there is a copyright expert, <laughs> let us know if it would be a good okay email. Do we have any attorney friends out there? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I, I like this poem a lot. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, it, it really does kind of highlight the, the humor that we're starting to see come into his poetry that, that to me is like one of the distinctive uh, marks of this particular collection. I mean, there's there are some poems in this collection that seem to me to belong to the previous collection openings. Uh, some of the more more serious poems that are still dealing directly with, uh, particularly the the Vietnam War, um, seem to be at least if not to belong to the previous collection to to be of a of a piece with the previous collection, but but this collection starts to introduce this idea of madness and and humor um, that I think is is really well captured here. That's right. I think that this is actually the first time 
this collection is the first in which we have a Mad Farmer poem. Yeah. Now, I wonder if we could talk through, like, who we think the Mad Farmer is and what we make of of who the Mad Farmer might be. Mm-hmm. Mm. Because I, I, I did a little bit of reading. There's actually a collection. I've got it here. You guys can see it. Our listeners can't see mm-hmm. it. Uh, called the Mad Farmer poems. That that's a collection. We should say that there are other Mad Farmer poems that appear in later collections that we'll we'll get to at, at a later date. Uh, but there's a a collection with with some really lovely illustrations uh, that was put together. I'm trying to find the year here, <laughs> and I'm and I'm not seeing it. It doesn't have a normal title page. Uh, but but sometime in the early 2000s, I think. Um, and we can we can put that in the show notes. But anyways, it's a collection of uh, of of the Mad Farmer poems throughout Barry's uh, Barry's poetry. And there's a foreword in here by Ed McClanahan, mm-hmm. who to whom Barry either dedicates or mentions in sort of the. Uh, um, he dedicates a couple poems to him. Yeah, to, to Ed McClanahan in the Mad Farmer Revolution, the first Mad Farmer poem. And so Ed McClanahan has a foreword in this book that says, the Mad Farmer is definitely not Wendell Berry. Uh, he is a character that sort of rose up out of mm. Berry. So it's, it's, it's probably not right to read Berry as, you know, the Mad Farmer as Berry's surrogate necessarily. I mean, even in that, that poem that you just read, John, you know, the, the bit about at the wedding let's see i knew where the bridegroom had sunk his manhood and knew it would not be resurrected by a piece of cake that doesn't sound like something wendell berry would say saying all of the lovely things that he has to say about marriage but it is this character so i think it is important to to note that there is sort of a distance between wendell berry and this character i don't know what do you guys think about that yeah i think that's definitely the the tone of the mad farmer poems changes i mean it's just a big jump from some of those i mean if you think about the poem i read that awake at night poem right poems about stillness poems about peace right mm-hmm. and then this one is kind of the uh the mad farmer poems often are the i don't know like the the concept of the id kind of came to mind like mm-hmm. uh as i was as i read some of these like the idea that it's just kind of the the kind of wild unchecked version of a farmer reacting to the world that he's stuck with. Right. Right. You know, it's just this sort of like, I don't know if this phrase even makes sense, but like a noble id, it's like a, cause when I think of id, you sometimes think of recklessness, right. Or, mm-hmm. or like, a, like a toddler or something, but there's this kind of reckless because there's so much injustice surrounding him. And throughout that, the contrariness of the mad farmer, poem i think you get that a whole lot because it's just <laughs> it's like anarchy basically yeah. like it's just oh, yeah. like, i'm just gonna oh you want to tell me that everything's gonna be okay i'm gonna tell you that everything's like falling apart or are you gonna tell me that like this this season's gonna go well i'm gonna say well maybe it won't it's just like it's just it's almost like that scene in uh if you guys watch parks and recreation there's that scene where uh <laughs> chris traeger that character is he's all depressed uh, about like 
I guess not his, his love life and April and Andy kind of get into, into a room and are trying to calm him down. And so they start saying opposite things. Like one says really great things. Another one says really like terrible things, which culminates in them going Dave Matthews band, Dave Matthews band. <laughs> it's just that kind of like, it's, he's almost like I'm going to be contrary just to balance everything out because yeah, yeah. you can't trust what's, what's true or what's not, or what's, what's right or what's wrong. And so you yeah. might as well acknowledge it all. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting that you mentioned the id. I mean, Ed McClanahan uses that as a, as a, in that forward as a description of, of the mad farmer, it might be oh, Wendell okay. Berry's. Nice. Yeah. 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 So nice, Woo. nice pick Tim. Need a little uh, bell to ring when that yeah. happens. Cause it's not going to happen very often. <laughs> and, and just for a little more historical context, uh, I didn't know this and I get this from Wikipedia. So, you know, Consider the source, but apparently Ed McClanahan was one of the Merry Pranksters. What? Yes. So the oh, Merry okay. Pranksters, uh, for those of you who don't know, are were this group of, including, and this makes sense because I think McClanahan and Barry both went to the University of Kentucky and also uh, McClanahan was a Stegner Fellow as well at Stanford. Yeah. So they're in San Francisco in the 60s. And uh, the Merry Pranksters and and sorry, King Kesey was was one of the the group that was with with these guys at Stanford, and he was heavily involved in the Merry Pranksters. This group that rode around in a psychedelically painted bus uh, to various locations, having LSD parties, uh, hosting yeah. LSD parties, um, and, with a little know, known band to... known as the Grateful Dead. Yeah, exactly. Playing, playing yeah, the music, yeah, heavily involved with the Grateful <laughs> Dead. So, not saying Wendell Berry was 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 part of this group. But but the fact that he dedicated that first poem to Ed McClanahan, uh, you know, sort of the... gives you a flavor for the the context of. <laughs> what if the Mad Farmer was inspired by Barry's one trip to a Ken Kesey acid test? Uh, well, if you read and... the Mad Farmer Revolution, <laughs> that first poem, you you kind of get that yeah. that vibe, right? So yeah, yeah, I uh... <laughs> yeah. Gosh, that's interesting. You know, um, I, I'm sorry to like jump backwards a little bit, but I did just want to agree on the the note of just the humor in this, in the Mad Farmer poems that I, I feel like he lets himself loose a little bit on the, on the, with, with the humor. And I think early on in this podcast in season one, I mentioned something about the uh, Barry has a tendency which I've, you know, I, I enjoy, but he has a tendency to do these, both this and that comparisons where he says like, they are both born and unborn, or he likes to use those, like where he describes something by using two opposites, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that falls into this kind of tendency to be contrary. And, um, and, uh, I just think it's also really ripe for the humor. I love the, uh, when they tell me God's dead, I answer, he goes fishing every day in the Kentucky river. I see him often. Yeah. You can just sort of hear, you can just kind of hear Burley Coulter saying that line or yeah, something like yeah, absolutely. Uh, some character like that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a, uh, yeah, I guess what I think of it as is a, a, a Dionysian figure, right? Dionysus plays this role in, um, in Greek, Greek mythology, right. As this, God of revelry and chaos that mm -hmm. somehow helps 
restore the sanity of uh, of the community. I'm thinking of a play like the the Bacchae, uh by Euripides. Um, yeah, that 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 Dionysian figure that that is present throughout literature after after Greek literature. Uh, Nietzsche, I think, writes about um, you know the 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 opposition between the the Dionysian and the Apollonian um, modes of art, right? And I think that's that may sort of be what we see in in this uh, in this collection hmm. with those more serious poems uh, and with these these more uh, hilarious poems um, <laughs> juxtaposing both both as a way of dealing with um, the the very serious. Uh, and terrible things going on in the world at the time. I love that you, I love that you brought this up, Jason, because it's a, I had for, I've read that Mad Farmer collection, including that Ford, and it's totally forgotten about that. And so it's a, as we get more and more into these Mad Farmer poems over the next, you know, next couple seasons, it's great to, that's a, a corrective for me to not assume that it's a kind of a, you know, a one-to-one, uh, correlation between barry and the mad farmer that sure. is that's an actual character i think that's that's really helpful yeah mm-hmm. now jason i know from a text that you sent that there were yeah that there was <laughs> there was also something else in this this collection um that uh you definitely wanted to to discuss um, yeah well you... and it's particularly in these mad far- mad farmer poems i i i love the mad farmer as a character and i want to unequivocally love the mad farmer as a character but there are a couple moments where particularly barry's treatment of women in these poems even if it is a a joke even if it is sort of a moment of uh yeah, this this Dionysian sort of uh, or id-driven um, chaos. Uh, I I'm still uncomfortable with it, and and I think per- particularly in in the Mad Farmer Revolution that that first poem. Um, I'll just read sort of the beginning of of that poem. The Mad Farmer, the thirsty one, went dry when he had had. When he had time, he threw a visionary high lonesome on the Holy Communion wine. It is an awesome event when an earthen man has drunk his fill of the blood of a god, people said, and got out of his way. He plowed the churchyard, the minister's wife, three graveyards, and a golf course. In In a parking lot, he planted a forest of little pines. He sanctified the groves, dancing at night in the little in the oak shades with goddesses. He led up, uh, he led a field of corn to creep up and tassel like an Indian tribe on the courthouse lawn. Pumpkins ran out to the ends of their vines to follow him. Ripe plums and peaches reached into his pockets. Flowers sprang up in his tracks everywhere he stepped. And then his planter's eye fell on that parson's fair fine lady again. Oh, holy plowman, cried she, I am all grown up in weeds. Pray bring me back into good tilth. And he tilled her carefully and laid her by, and she did bring forth others of her kind and others and some more. They sowed and reaped until all the countryside was filled with farmers and their brides sowing and reaping. When they died, they became two spirits of the woods. 
So again, you kind of get that uh, that psychedelic feeling. This is the one that is dedicated to to Ed Mc, Ed McClanahan. Yeah, um, I think of again the group God Dionysus. I also think of uh, all of our I think our Rabbit Room listeners will will identify Tom Bombadil in these lines probably uh, from from. The Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, I identified but... Thanos. Does that? <laughs> 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 I was like, this is like a hillbilly Thanos. This is like yeah, he's just... Thanos. Wow. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's just yeah. Uh, but but I mean that. I don't know, guys. That that line. He plowed the churchyard. The minister's wife. Three graveyards and a golf course. I mean, it's funny. Uh, but yeah. like, is there? I can't help but interpret a level of violence towards women there that is troubling to me. And I, obviously this is 1970. This is pre me too. But at the same time, like I, uh, I don't know what, what, what do you guys make of it? That's about as explicit as I can. I mean, as far as in my memory goes that he ever gets as far as like using language, um, and sex, right? right. Um, and that is, I, I, I'm with you there that it, it seems. I, so I'll also go back to like, we're talking about the mad farmer being a character. Right. And I think we have to then talk about like, is this mad farmer a perfect character? Right. Right. Um, so if this, if this mad farmer is this sort of like wild unchecked character, then there are things about them that I don't think reading, lines like those well like they might be troubling i i just have to like think about them as is you know is the, is them being troubling possibly the point because this is somebody who's kind of risen out of the ashes of the late 60s and his vietnam is heating up and all this that it's just like anything goes because that's i mean it's kind of how you, you learn a lot about the 60s and that's kind of the the vibe people were getting so i don't know that we're supposed to be like I don't think Barry's intending us to cheer him on. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. the language and the language that's used, I, I do acknowledge that the amount of like humor in pairing a churchyard, a minister's wife, a graveyard and a golf course in a line definitely kind of makes it seemingly like, in, uh, like he's intending it to be comical. Right. Right. What do you think, John? I've really I have struggled with this since getting your text kind of giving us a heads up that this was that this was coming and I reread right. basically the second yeah maybe the, the the last two thirds of the collection sort of with that in mind um, I guess I did not I didn't I I didn't sense the violence in it. Um, Gosh, it seems so strange to use the language I'm about ready to to use in in this setting, but like it didn't. I didn't assume it was non consensual. Right. Um, uh, I mean, later what, later in the poem, it seems seems like it is it is consensual, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think having the conversation we just had about about who the mad farmer is. Imagine, like, so put yourself in my position before 10 minutes ago, and I thought the mad farmer was Wendell Berry. (laughs) (laughs) 
so it's actually looking way better. <laughs> You're like, Tanya read right. these poems? Right, yeah. right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and, and I should say, my wife, my wife read, and you know, man, I don't know. I, I had her read this this poem as well, and asked her what she thought, and you know, she sort of acknowledged that that what I was seeing is is there, but but at the same time, it, it's not something that that offended her right off the bat. Um, I don't know. I think it's my uh, it's my. I think I in in that text I sent you guys. I said I'm I'm going to be the the liberal lit crit worry wart um, uh, of of the of the podcast again, um, and I've just been trained to read literature with that with that perspective of okay, um, how are how are women being portrayed? What is the uh, obviously it's a male male speaker, a male character. Like what is the orientation? What are the power dynamics and and things like that? And that's just kind of how I'm what what I bring to any text for for better for worse as a as a result of that training. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It it and does I, help. It does help me that it's not. You know, I I just read that tonight as well. That it's definitely not Wendell Berry himself. It's not a stand-in. Um, but yeah, I still in particularly in our age where they're very we're we're just now beginning to have public conversations about these uh, about this kind of issue. I'm still I'm still a little uncomfortable with it, but that that just may have to be where it where we leave it. If it's okay, I'd like to actually bring up some of the language specifically from your text because yeah. you mentioned in there that that it didn't seem like the women in these poems have much agency. Yeah. And you were talking about the the analogy between women and fertile farmland. Yeah. And yeah. it does seem like in the Mad Farmer Revolution poem that you just read, it seems like the the female character, the 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 minister's wife, is there to bear the children of the mad farmer. Right. Like his job is to is to sow is to till to sow seeds, and her job is is to give birth to the mad farmer's vision. Right. For is that? I mean, because because yeah, I, I think that's the way to read it. Yeah. On uh, on rereading, like I yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. Well, and it, it it does seem like his. Uh, he is also there to upset the order of things, right? That's why it's the minister's wife, right? Like who is who is going to be the most, you know, faithful to her husband? I mean, he's not the minister, so we're talking about <laughs> him having sex with the minister's wife, you know. Uh, the and the mad the mad farmer's there to to upset the order of things that um, I don't know might might be considered to be insane. Insofar as we know about Barry's sort of view of the organized religion of the time, um, mm. so um, yeah, and, and then that that she is just you know kind of a a pawn in this in this game. I mean, may, maybe that's a little too strong. Maybe that's a little more uncharitable because she does seem to want to go along with him. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's there... it's a little troubling to me still. But yeah. <laughs> There's also the trope of like the minister's wife being like the 
the more influential of the two. I don't know if that would sure. factor sure. in there as well. Um, yeah. And the other like interpretation I was going to toss in kind of to piggyback what you guys just brought up is, um, and I'm, this is just thinking out loud basically, but is there potential for the, the mad farmer character to be a sort of collective character that's like supposed to be standing in for like a, a group, right? Uh, that it's not a character that is this one fictional person who's running, you know, like raising hell through, through Kentucky or whatever, but uh, being this concept of the sort of radical farmer, like the person who's, who's back at the land and who is doing things opposite of what the rest of the world is telling him he should do. And is, is sort of having this sort of, yeah, I don't know, sort of, sort of dishing out this anarchy around, around the land because he is refusing to, yeah, to match what the world's given him. I think yeah. we're going to, I think we're going to come up into some poems, maybe even in the next collection in which very explicitly compares farming and marriage. And this is something that that's actually a metaphor that's been really, really powerful for my wife and me as we, to think about like the importance of kind of staying within your bounds. Like, we flourish as we sort of stay within the bounds. We don't kind of covet what's in our neighbor's field. And so you have this very, very beautiful metaphor of flourishing by staying within bounds. And then you have something quite different in Mad Far- in the Mad Farmer Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like he's straying outside the accepted bounds. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 reading this that that is a good point sort of again reading this like like I mentioned earlier with the mad farmer's feelings about being at a wedding versus Barry's, you know, thoughts about marriage, very poignant, very uh helpful thoughts about marriage. Um yeah, think thinking about this in that context might help with this this farmer as just sort of an it driven um yeah, figure. Yeah, because this is also um, this is the same character which we read this poem in our live episode at at Hutchmoot. But I mean, yeah, this is yeah. the same character that gives us arguably you know, our favorite poem sure. from Barry Period, which is the sure. manifesto. Um, which definitely the character of the manifesto seems. <laughs> a little more mature or something right, than, the, right, right. than the, the contrariness one. Uh, this seems like a little, they seem like a little bit of a different character, at least in a different time of life. I don't know if, you know, maybe the, yeah. the mad farmer is his go-to poetic voice for reacting to a time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Well, and this one, this one is what, what's interesting about this, this poem, the mad farmer revolution is that it's in third person, right? It's not first first person from the Mad Farmer like those mm-hmm. other ones are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Any other poems that we should that the two of you really want to talk about? Well, I uh, this is I don't have much of a note on it, but one poem that I found just interesting because it was different than other poems that I'd seen from Barry so far in my life was uh, taking another look at uh, the birth near Port William. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, and what I, it caught me is really interesting because uh, just to summarize, it is a 
it, it, it was interesting because it's a narrative poem in a lot of ways. It's telling a story, and you don't really see that that often um, in his work and his poetry. And it made me think. It, this this poem tells the story of some men who are up uh, very late at night in lambing season, which of course, as I was reading through it, I was like, come on, when's the whiskey going to come up? Um, <laughs> just think, I was like, please be a tall, proud foot story. Uh, but you know, when, when's, when I was uh, reading this and hearing about them, uh, you know, they're up late, they're lambing, and then they walk they're having this kind of common conversation with one another. And then they go next door and they, I'm going to read this section. It says, uh, this is after they had dealt with the lambs and they're talking about being up so late. And he says, um, they were already on their way, dry leaves underfoot and mud under leaves, to another barn on down along the wood's edge, an old stripping room, where by the light of the, st- of the open stove door they saw the man and the woman and the child lying on a bed of straw on the dirt floor. Well, look at there, the old man said. First time this ever happened there, here. And Billy, looking and looking away, said, Howdy, howdy, bad night. And Raymond said, there's a first time they say for everything. Uh, and then they get into this really rich imagery about uh, the wind. Um, and here, you know, you hear uh, the singing of the wind and who is that. And I really just, I really enjoyed it and it had this kind of nativity yes. uh, mm-hmm. imagery to it. That is this notion of these men who are just in the most common of situations, uh, who are just lambing late at night that they kind of stumble across this situation and they, they give you kind of, and you get this kind of three wise men feel about them that there's just these, or the, these three men who drop in, they stuff $3 in the, in the door frame for them when they're done, <laughs> when they're done. And it was just a really nice story. And there's also, it's one of those that um, even here at this point where I've read it a few times, I'm ready to go back and kind of keep, keep mining it for more, for more because there's just a lot of really interesting really interesting imagery there it, it there's a ron rash it's actually a poem and a story that i really really love and it's called um, 3 a.m and the stars were out um, and it's the story of two old friends who actually i think it was vietnam they, they served uh they served in vietnam and uh Late at night, one of them is a veterinarian who's retired. Uh, he comes over to his friend's house and they help each other birth, uh, help a calf be born late at night. And they're wondering like, man, if only our, <laughs> if only our kids knew what we were doing. And it's just this very slow kind of contemplative story where they're reflecting on their life together. And uh, so it was, it was written originally as a poem. And then he eventually wrote a short story, uh, 3 a.m. and the stars were out. But uh, I don't know if that one, if anything about that one struck out to to you two fellers maybe it's just because yeah, of, of the season we're in but i i definitely thought of of the nativity as well yeah absolutely yeah I and mean, it seems it seems that's what he's he's begging us to do right mm-hmm. um, but you heard that singing in the wind billy said what about that ghosts they do that way not that way scared him it did the old man laughed We'll have to hold his damn hand for him and lead him home. <laughs> it's, it's got that humor, <laughs> the humor stepping into it as well. Um, I, I love, I love any piece of his work that shows a, the most common activity possible, the most mundane thing possible, and then, and then kind of uh, blowing it up and showing the spectacular within the mundane. That's right. 
and there's there's that <laughs> i mean throughout this this collection i think he's talking about sex more than he talks about he has he has thus far at least right uh and there's the uh when they're sort of sitting around talking and uh one of the guys says you know i'd like to be at home in bed uh he says damn he said i'd like to be asleep i'd like to be curled up in a warm nest like an old groundhog and sleep till spring and another guy says when I was your age, Billy, it wasn't sleep I thought about, Uncle Stanley said. Last few years here, I took to sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Good stuff there. Uh, another, if I may, another poem that stood out to me, especially in the uh, polarized social media world we live in, is A Standing Ground. Uh, and it's short. I'd love to just read it if that's all right mm-hmm. with you guys. Yeah. Uh, however just and anxious I have been, I will stop and step back from the crowd of those who may agree with what I say and be a part. There is no earthly promise of life or peace, but where the roots branch and weave their patient, silent passages in the dark. Uprooted, I have been furious without an, an aim. I am not bound for any public place, but for ground of my own, where I have planted vines and orchard trees, and in the heat of the day climbed up into the healing shadow of the woods. Better than any argument is to rise at dawn and pick dew-wet berries, dew-wet red berries in a cup. I just love that as a, as a reminder... Um, you know, I, I I do think that there is a place, maybe maybe more so than Barry does. I do think that there is a place for public engagement and and political engagement, but at the same time, it's important to remind oneself that you know, screaming into the void of social media is probably not going to uh, not going to do as much good as paying attention to the people and the place that that you are a part of. Um, and, and engaging with that. So a good yeah. poem to take into an election year anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, that's funny that that poem, that was one that I kind of s- skirted by without really saying, hmm. saying anything about it. I didn't mark much about it. Um, I don't, I don't think I, I didn't dislike it, but having that sort of, uh, yeah. So I, 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 I could use this phrase a lot. I know I do it in class a lot, but that lens is really, is really valuable. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of uh, if you guys have ever watched the show Hot Ones. <laughs> I'm sorry to make this no. reference, but no. it's on YouTube. But it's a it's a guy who interviews musicians and actors and filmmakers and things. And and over the course of the conversation, they eat progressively hotter wings. So like by the last <laughs> one, like by the by the tenth wing, it's this like unreal like Scoville level wing. So people end up saying kind of like interesting things because they're just like so they're just in pain from these wings. But they, I saw Ricky Gervais on there, and he he was describing what what's wrong with social media, like why because he's on it obviously. But one thing he hates about it, he's like the metaphor he uses, and I'm gonna try to I'm gonna soften the language. Uh, that he uses, but he says that the internet, the internet could basically be sum, summed up in, in this interaction. It's like, if it was a, if it was a real world thing that you came across in your daily life, imagine looking up at a, like a cork board, like a bulletin board and somebody walks up and sees an advertisement for guitar lessons. And instead of just 
you know, keep walking. They grab the, they grab the notice off the board and they say, I don't want any friggin' guitar lessons. Take these guitar <laughs> lessons back, you know, like throws them on the ground, steps on the advertisement. Like that's, that's what we, that's what yeah. we do. And I, I think that's the, the complete inverse of, you know, yeah. Uh, what, yeah, what's, what's, what you're saying in this poem. And I mean, imagine if he was writing that same poem today and the, because I'm sure he was feeling like the news and just the, the issues of the day were totally overwhelming sure, and totally all encompassing. Um, but today it's, it, it feels like there are 10 of those a day sometimes because of how people, um, or because of how, how the world presents us our information. Sure. John, do you have one more so we don't end on a Ricky Gervais reference on yeah, hot ones? I do. Yeah. Yep. I really <laughs> liked uh, the poem, The Silence. Uh, all throughout, one of the things that I experienced throughout reading this, rereading this collection is just the deep desire to make going outside a more, and just wandering a more regular discipline. Mm-hmm. just for the chance even as I I mean I just did it like even just thinking about it I took a really deep breath and I think it is uh, it's just something that my body and my soul needs and that was uh, just not just reinforced but it, it came up again and again as I was reading his his poems just sort of in in the midst of the madness of the world taking time to to wander and to watch and to sit and be still and um, to watch the the birds and the trees and um, I've probably even said that on this show before like on our podcast before and that I'm bringing it up again shows that I have not done it yet um, I have not made that a reg- the regular discipline it needs to be but this poem gets at some of that. Again, it's called The Silence. What must a man do to be at home in the world? There must be times when he is here as though absent. Gone beyond words into the woven shadows of the grass and the flighty darknesses of leaves shaking in the wind. And beyond the sense of the weariness of engines and of his own heart. His wrongs grown old, unforgiven. It must be with him as though his bones fade beyond thought into the shadows that grow out of the ground so that the furrow he opens in the earth opens in his bones and he hears the silence of the tongues of the dead tribesmen buried here a thousand years ago. And then what presences will rise up before him? Weeds bearing flowers and the dry wind rain. What songs he will hear? Get some some rare Wendelberry exclamation marks. <laughs> That's true. Well, this has been it's been fun to talk about this collection. I'm excited because in our next episode, episode five, we are getting to our first ever novel. We're going to be talking about Nathan Coulter. Have either of you read Nathan Coulter before? I actually haven't. I'm surprised I haven't, but I haven't. Yeah, I have. Yeah, it's been a long time since I read it. So, and I think I've only ever read it once. Hopefully, Jason will 
will be able to join us, but if not, he will have an awesome, an awesome reason to not be here. Absolutely. Well, that's it. And thank you for listening to this episode of the membership. A couple things we want to remind you of. Uh, you can find us at our website at membershippod.com. And we're on all of the social uh, social channels, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at membershippod. Love to connect with you there. We have a Patreon account. So if you'd like to support the show, um, we'd be really grateful. It will help us cover some of the, the hosting fees and equipment and some of those sorts of things. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash membership pod. If you would not mind doing us another favor, if you would rate and review us on iTunes, that would really help with our visibility and help other people discover the podcast. We discussed today Farming, a handbook, which was written in 1970 uh, by Wendell Berry. We used a text from the new collected poems which is copyright counterpoint press uh, 2012 the membership is a proud member of the rabbit room podcast network you can find more great podcasts at rabbitroom.com slash podcast 